Welcome to Creators by Moonlight. Real conversations with content creators. Mike Messier is a writer, actor, filmmaker, and YouTuber. Frustrated with his local filmmaking scene, he created his own film festival, Avalonia Festival, now in its seventh year. In this interview, he talks about his love for pro wrestling, receiving his first on-screen role directly from Sybil Shepard, and practical tips when moving for a better life. Hi, I'm Mike Messier. I was born in Arlington, Virginia, and I spent my childhood going back and forth between Northern Virginia uh, for elementary school, middle school, and high school. And then in the summers and uh, the winters for Christmas, my family would usually go to the state of Rhode Island. And so I kind of had a, a childhood that was kind of a mixed thing of the, of the Northern South and the Southern North, I guess you'd say. On a day-to-day basis, you know, like a lot of kids, my parents were going through a tough divorce that lasted most of my childhood and was pretty hard to deal with because uh, it got bitter and complicated as most relationships that aren't working that continue to stay together in theory uh, can cause aggravation for the kids. I watched a lot of movies uh, on TV as a kid and then of course going to the theater. My parents uh, took me to the movies quite a bit, oftentimes would drop me off for rated R movies, uh, Poltergeist and other movies like that that I probably was technically too young to see with the uh, the rated R uh, <laughs> way of doing things, but saw them anyway. My interests included uh, cartoons when I was a really young kid, but that kind of segued out and uh, professional wrestling as an interest took over when I was about nine years old. And I've been uh, watching ever since and involved in some ways with wrestling. What I liked about professional wrestling as a child was it was this whole other world, you know, and you could call it a subculture, but at the time I was too young to understand what a subculture was. I just, I saw it as being like this whole other universe where there's, you know, wild Samoans and native American brothers and, and all these kind of interesting ethnicities that although presented in a stereotypical way, at least there was some diversity because where I grew up in the Virginia suburbs were basically uh, Caucasian people. So to be able to watch a world of wrestling where you have really an integrated world uh, of ethnicities and, and people beating each other up and tag teaming and all these things are happening, but in professional wrestling, uh, there was a diversity to it and an excitingness to it that my suburban upbringing was not presenting to me. I was able to convince my parents to take me to a pro wrestling show. I think for my 10th birthday, I want to guess, and they took me and my sister, and we go to this Capitol Center, uh, 15,000 people to see Andre the Giant versus Blackjack Mulligan in a Texas death match. And, uh, you know, even even my sister enjoyed it, you know, <laughs> because it was so exciting. And just to see this 500-pound Andre the Giant, and uh, he's given a bear hug to this 300-pound Blackjack Mulligan, whose back is turning beet red, and then Mulligan takes his dreaded claw and puts that on Andre's head. Uh, it, it was pretty uh, impactful. I mean, I can remember that mental image uh, many years later, as I am. So uh, once you get going to the live pro wrestling shows, at least in that era, it's it's easy to get hooked on to the excitement and the, 
just it's, un, it's unusual compared to everyday living, I would say. And even everyday other entertainment, you know, like there's a certain vibe for a pro wrestling show that's unique to itself that you can't replicate even in a boxing uh, match or a football game or a baseball game. It's, it's just a different type of thing. When I was in college, I had a few matches. I had about 13 wrestling matches on a local level, local group called Power League Wrestling. And um, I wrestled as Mad Dog Mike Messier. There's rumors that I wrestled as the character of Smudge Baby, although those rumors are not verified. And I, I wanted to wrestle a, a bit of matches just so I could, because I always envisioned myself working behind the scenes at a major pro wrestling group. And I wanted to have a few matches on my resume just so that I could tell guys that I did it. Just so that if any of the wrestlers ever said to me, hey, man, what are you, what are you saying about my wrestling? You never try this. And I can say, well, actually, I did. So, so that's why I wrestled a bunch of matches, but, but only like 13. The physicality um, wasn't really for me. Uh, the, the talking, the hyping, the mic work, I could take care of that. I found my niche more so with being a ring announcer, a commentator. And uh, a potential writer, in 2007, I had a job interview for the WWE creative writing team. Um, I was not hired. I would stand by that the storyline that I wrote for my you know, audition, so to speak, would be better than anything they've done since. So some of my enjoyment and love for the WWE wrestling particular, in particular has faded, knowing as a writer that what I would write for them is better than what they're presenting currently. It's hard for me to really get behind or be motivated to watch their product anymore. But luckily for me, there's other wrestling groups that have come along. Uh, AEW All Elite Wrestling is in their third year of business right now. Uh, they do shows out of Jacksonville, Florida, which I uh, attend on a fairly regular basis. I'll be going to their shows next week just as a fan. And uh, for me, I've kind of resolved myself to the fact that the pro wrestling business is is full of uh, people that are somewhat juvenile and somewhat backstabbing in their nature, and that's not like the that's not the way I like to conduct myself. So I've just kind of decided that it's not in the cards for me to really be involved in wrestling, other than doing the podcasts and the angry wrestling fan rants that I do on my YouTube channel. You know, I, I provide my own commentaries and my own thoughts on the pro wrestling scene on subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel and uh my fan base is is mostly wrestling fans who enjoy my riffs and my rants and my arguments and my interviews with with wrestlers and my thoughts on wrestling aside from pro wrestling mike's other love was for movies and this would greatly influence his teenage years when I was a kid, there was a fond memory I have of, of actually skipping a day of school with a good friend of mine named Chris. We had a fun incident where we borrowed, you know, somebody's car uh, without them knowing about it. And we took off to the local movie theater to see Goodfellas. And, uh, you know, I, I still remember that day after all these years because it was probably one of the best educations of my life, you know, uh, to see Goodfellas on the big screen instead of another day of, of schoolwork. and. Uh, the movie was fantastic, Ray Liotta. I don't think he's ever done anything as good as he was in Goodfellas, not that I've seen, but tremendous role for him. And um, things like Highlander, I, I saw a couple of years later. That's a great film. Um, and Christopher Lambay in that. Uh, Flash Gordon, when I was really young, 
was was a, a fun movie that I enjoyed seeing, you know, and that that stands out as kind of a spectacle movie, but but had some fun to it. In high school, I was lucky because my school in my senior year offered a television production class as an elective. And I am really grateful that that happened because that was the first time in an organized environment with only about seven or eight other students in the class. We had a teacher who was a little rough around the edges, you know, Mr. Harvey, he was kind of an old school guy, but he, he showed us cameras and he showed us editing and we were writing scripts and, and, and acting in them. And I remember writing a piece for my class called World War Three Part Two, where um, all the sons, uh, you know, basically we had Ronald Reagan's son, Roddy Reagan and, and George Bush Jr. We had a character named George Bush Jr. who were, they were fighting the ghost of Saddam Hussein. So I came up with this really weird movie that actually years later kind of seemed prophetic or maybe pathetic, depending on how you look at it. But I mean, the characters would come onto the screen and, and rap, you know, like rap was big at the time. So I would, you know, I had a Saddam Hussein was rapping his introduction and there was a mystical character named uh, Zorba the Witch or something. And so that, that was the first time my senior year of high school where I can say I actually wrote a script, wrote it on loose leaf paper, you know, one copy of the script. And uh, somebody filmed it and somebody edited it, you know, and, and we actually, a, a movie that I wrote actually came to the screen, you know, for better or for worse. So uh, that was fun. As far as what jobs I was looking at before the entertainment world or instead of the entertainment world, I did some uh, course managing for an after school program one year. Uh, it, it was a something called the Federal Hill House in Providence, Rhode Island. A very nice thing. It was it was uh, kids, you know, from they might call them underprivileged families, but they they might be just kids, you know, who who their parents drop them off on a Saturday for about six or seven hours, so the parents get a break from the kids, and they have um, these college age mentors who would mentor the kids, and so we would set up the lunches and and do different activities, and sometimes there'd be field trips. So I was the course manager for that. And I, I kind of learned like, wow, there really is a lot to this, you know, the humanities of, of working with people, especially young people. You know, sometimes we'd have kids who'd come in there and the kids would tell us that they were getting abused at home, you know, and, and how do you deal with that as a, as a course manager? Well, you, you figure it out. It was definitely a thing that I learned uh, more so to respect people who do that type of thing for a living rather than wanting to, to continue it myself. Other jobs I had, I sold subscriptions uh, for a theater company in Providence, Rhode Island for many years. Actually, two, Trinity Repertory Company and uh, PPAC, Providence Performing Arts Center. So I learned how to you know, gab on the phone and try to get people enthusiastic about shows. But the problem was, you know, for me, I didn't enjoy selling tickets to shows that I wasn't involved in. <laughs> you know, why, why should I be selling this theater show? to someone trying to convince them that these local actors are so great when in fact I feel like I should be on that stage myself. And, you know, the, the thought for taking those subscription selling jobs was, Hey, this is a foot in the door for this local theater. And if they, you know, maybe I'll be get a chance to send them my scripts and show them what I can do as an actor. And that's when I started learning about clicks and, and, uh, you know, preferred, uh, preferred preferences among associates and stuff like that, where you kind of learn if, if, a, if a certain group of people pigeonhole you one way, 
you're never going to get out of that. So, I mean, I kind of learned the hard-earned lesson is you have to do your own thing because these cliques and these uh, established entities aren't really necessarily looking for outsiders. And that's a difficult lesson to learn for a lot of people because a lot of people naively think, as I did, that if you have talent, the world is your oyster. Well, a lot of times that shell is closed and you've got to go out and harvest your own oysters or something else, shrimp or whatever. Mike's early involvement with writing and filmmaking led to an acting career based in New England. When I was in my senior year of college, a friend of mine, George Lamastro, had access to so many DV digital video cameras that were at the time very cutting edge. Uh, the Sony VX2000, I believe was the name, and DSLR. Anyway, it wasn't even a DSLRs before that. So the Sony VX2000, and I think we had a Canon GL1. Uh, so these cameras were a couple of generations back, but at the time they were cutting edge. And so George asked me if I had any ideas for a low budget movie because George had ideas for big budget movies, but he needed something that was a low budget. And I did for, for whatever reason, I had come up with an idea for a movie that eventually became man and you a Providence love story. And the idea was that there's this uh, local rock and roll singer, female, kind of like a Courtney love type. And we have a brooding guy who is fascinated with her and obsessed with her and goes to her rock shows and is kind of a stalker. And then uh, the change in the movie is that they actually start a, a romance so that the audience is kind of thinking, hey, you know, maybe this is a beauty slays the beast type of thing, uh, that, that she's gotten to his heart, you know. And, of course, we didn't have any, we didn't really know any actors. You know, I knew a, a rock and roll singer girl for the lead role, but... I became the lead actor of the movie, you know, kind of by default. And uh, when I watch that movie now, I can see that my acting improves with the scenes that we filmed later in the process because it took us about a year and a half to film the whole movie. It was an 80 long minute, 80 minute movie. So it's just interesting that I can see the scenes we filmed, you know, the first couple of shoots, my acting is, is not as good as later on in the movie. But by the time the movie was done, and I had a lot to do with the production values as far as uh, getting locations for free and, and other actors and music. I did a lot of that stuff for that movie. I got the acting bug. You know, that's what came out of it. So I started taking an acting class with a guy named Fred Sullivan. And uh, he was my first acting teacher. And oddly enough, all these years later, we just were in a movie together, uh, Mr. Birthday, that's now out uh, on YouTube. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's a movie that's got the straight to video. Uh, you know, uh, direct to home video, um, uh, platforms, uh, Eric Roberts is in it and so forth. So I got the acting bug by doing man and you a Providence love story. So, so basically I got the acting bug by, by creating a movie of my own. The timing was right for Providence, Rhode Island in the early to mid two thousands. There was a tax credit that came for films and television shot in Rhode Island. And I believe Massachusetts also had, had the same thing. And this was kind of a trend that was going on throughout the country. A, a guy named Steven Feinberg who's the, and Carol Connolly, who worked at the Rhode Island Film Office, Film and TV Office, they were very instrumental in getting a lot of productions to Rhode Island. And a, a casting director named Annie Mulhall was a, a, a very big key player at this time uh, because 
when the movie Hard Luck came to Rhode Island, which was directed by Mario Van Peebles. Most people remember Mario because uh, his father, Melvin Van Peebles, was really the first black exploitation filmmaker. And so Mario comes to town. He was he was fresh off a big success with a movie called Badass, which is actually about his father, Melvin Van Peebles. And Mario had Wesley Snipes as a lead, and he had Sybil Shepard as the as a lead actress. And Sybil Shepard was uh, she dated Elvis? You know, she had a she had her own sitcom in the '90s called Sybil. In the '80s, she was probably the biggest TV star in the country with a show called Moonlighting with Bruce Willis. You know, that's how he got his start was was with her. And so the long and the short of it is, I got an opportunity to audition for this movie. Uh, hard luck as the character named Eugene, which would be the son of Sybil Shepherd's character, Cass. And I had to audition four times for this movie. And apparently there was a guy in New York City that was six foot nine and, you know, more physically imposing than me. Uh, and so Mario apparently couldn't decide between me and the other actor. And so he let Sybil Shepherd watch the videotapes of the two of us auditioning uh, separately, of course. And uh, Sybil chose me. You know, Sybil, Sybil thought I should play her son. So I did get to play her son uh, in Hard Luck. And that was a movie that, you know, I got Taft Hartley into this, the Screen Actors Guild, which is a whole other thing. And that was really exciting. So, I mean, the, the basic thought is that as, as hard as I was working locally, and at the time I was doing local dinner theater, I was running a public access show, I was trying to get my name somewhere through through things. But sometimes it takes the work of other people to allow for a break to happen. You know, if it wasn't for Steve and Carol and Annie, you know, kind of setting those opportunities up, I wouldn't have the opportunity to be in that movie. And, you know, years later, uh, 2011, um, a couple of nice things happened. There was, there was a, a piece called Olive Kitteridge up in Massachusetts. That was an HBO four-part miniseries. The casting director up there was a, was a really nice guy who who auditioned me uh, for a, a role as a brother-in-law. And so it was just a, a, a small scene, but a nice little moment on camera for me because I'm working in a scene with Francis McDorbert and uh, Richard Jenkins, you know, who are two huge actors, you know what I mean? And so I think later on, maybe the next year, I went down to Connecticut to do a scene in a movie. I was just there for extra work, and I ended up in a scene with Elizabeth Shue and Meryl Streep. And uh, that story was interesting. You know, I... I although it can be said that it was just a random thing, I did whatever I could do in the situation in a very subtle way to make sure that I was in the best possible position to be in that scene with Meryl Streep and, Sybil, and, and Elizabeth Shue. Uh, and it worked. When I got to the set in Connecticut for the movies called Hope Springs, the first revelation was you know, the, the extras wrangler or assistant, whoever told us that in fact, it would be Meryl Streep and Elizabeth Shue were on set that day. So that was the first thing that kind of caught my ears. Like, okay, I really got to be on my game here because this was a big budget movie of the 40 extras that they had there for the day. They, I think they took about 25 of us to the location of the, of the shoot, which was a bar by the water. And then we're, we're being kind of looked over by the actual person who's going to select of these 25 extras, maybe 15 will actually be on the set. Now I'm looking around and um, I kind of, in my own opinion, I was dressed very similar 
to a lot of the other guys that were there. You know, a lot of just big, you know, Caucasian people. We all kind of looked the same. But I noticed that a friend of mine who I'll give him credit, Jamie White, he he stands out because he's got he looks like a redheaded pirate. You know, he's got long red hair. He's got a long beard. He's got a, you know, he's a thin, wiry guy. So he stands out. And he was talking, knowing Jamie, not surprisingly, to an attractive young woman who I had a feeling she was there to play the waitress. You know, the way that she was dressed, it was obvious, okay, this girl is is obviously more attractive than the rest of these guys. And she's here to play the waitress. And my friend Jamie, who is uh, talking to her, he he stands out because he's got a very unique look. So so rather than stay away from those two, and normally I'd give a friend of mine space if he's talking to a young woman, I would not try to interfere with that. But in this particular situation, I said, well, I better stand next to Jamie and this girl because when the casting director comes over and he starts picking people out, if he sees me with all these other normal-looking Barney Rubble and Fred Frunstone-looking guys, I may or may not get called. But if I'm lumped in with the cool-looking redheaded dude and the pretty young girl who is obviously going to be on set because she's playing the waitress, it's going to be very easy for them to clump me in with those two and get me on set. Well, that's what happened. So, I mean, I played that as best as you could. And um, then when I got put on the, the set, the best thing to do is, is smile and keep your mouth shut and maybe not even smile, you know, and, and that's essentially what I did. And then the fates were just with me that day that whoever was arranging the people on the, on the set, whether it was the assistant director or the director himself, decided that I had a face they wanted in the background of the scene, you know. And when Elizabeth Shue started ad-libbing, she initially started ad-libbing with someone else in the room, but then the director changed that attention to me because I was already positioned with my face facing the camera. And he just pointed down at me and said, what's your name? I said, Mike. And then he says, okay, Elizabeth, use the name Mike. And, and so suddenly this scene is being thrown in my face. And I got, I got no direction uh, from that. The director didn't tell me how to emote or, you know, it's just a fun little scene. But in my mind, what's going on in that scene in Hope Springs, about the 25-minute mark, is that I'm being made fun of. You know, the, the waitress that Elizabeth Shue is playing is, is mocking me. And so while everyone else in that bar is smiling and, and, and waving their hands as the scene calls for, because my character is being mocked and humiliated, I had to really get dark in my mind. And I, I had to tune out the fact that, oh, my God, here I am with Elizabeth Shue and Meryl Streep, and isn't this amazing, blah, blah, blah. I had to start thinking like an actor. If my character is being mocked, I'm not going to be smiling and goofy and happy. I'm going to think about my grandmother's funeral or dead cats or whatever comes to mind to take any type of smile off my face and get really sad and emotional because that's going to make this scene work. And, you know... The scenes stayed in the film, which is highly unusual for an improv scene to get shot in the first place on a movie of that budget. And I mean, it's kind of unheard of that they just spontaneously start shooting something like that. But on top of that, the fact that it didn't get cut, you know, because a lot of times if there is some type of improv scene in a movie, those are the typical things that become DVD extras. So I was half expecting that my scene in this film uh, would not be in in the movie, but lo and behold, it is, and it even got to be in the preview. So that was a good experience for me. 
After my role in Hard Luck, I was hoping that there would be more opportunities. This is the film with Sybil Shepard, Wesley Snipes, and Mary Wayne Peebles. Uh, Louise Guzman's also in the film. The way that we were told that things were going to happen is that Hard Luck was going to have a 4th of July weekend release. It was going to be a big, exciting thing. This was going to be Mario's, uh, the director's, his version of Pulp Fiction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in 2006, the 4th of July weekend came and there was no movie. So myself and others that had, you know, been involved in some way were just kind of scratching our head, wondering and waiting what's going to happen. And eventually the movie got released, but it was straight to video. You know, they had a, they had a one night uh, premiere at the Harlem Film Festival, which I was not invited to, which was, you know, kind of disappointing. And um, the movie went straight to Blockbuster. And it was just one of those things where had I known, and this was another life lesson, which doesn't help me, but might help someone else. Had I known that the movie was not going to have this big release into major major motion picture theaters, I would have been a lot more aggressive in my self-promotion having been in that movie because here's the lesson. As an actor, just as an actor, not as a writer, director, but if you're just an actor with a, with a, a medium-sized role or a small role in a movie, the best opportunity you have to promote that is before the movie's released. After you filmed your scenes, so you know you've been filmed, and before the movie comes out, because you have no control over distribution, uh, it's not my fault or my responsibility for any movie that, as if I'm just an actor, I can't control if that's going to go straight to video or to the movie theaters or whatever. You know, your parents or your families or your friends might try to put that rap on you, but as a as a mid rank actor or or whatever, it's out of your control, right? But what you can control is the amount of hype or promotion or trying to lock in with an agent or a manager or moving. Uh, you know, to to L.A. or New York during that window of time. So that was a great lesson. Unfortunately, I didn't figure that lesson out until it was too late. You know, so so the answer is, I don't think hard luck really led to anything directly. You know, no agent or no other film called me up and said, hey, I saw you, you know, your fight scene in, in Hard Luck. That was awesome. We're going to put you in this movie. That didn't happen. But what did happen was I got a really killer fight sequence with Wesley Snipes and Mario Van Peebles for my acting reel. I have a scene with Sybil Shepard, two scenes with Sybil Shepard for my acting reel. It brings, with what we could call the civilians, a certain amount of respect. Hey, I've, I've done a scene with Sybil Shepard. Oh, yeah, right. Sure you have. And unfortunately, when you're an actor, especially when you're not, you know, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. And, and things like movies that I've filmed, you know, for instance, I did a movie the, the George Odd Show. It was a, a Rhode Island school design student film after 9-11. I think that's my best acting from that time period. But nobody cares about a RISD student film. What they care about is five minutes with Sybil Shepard, Wesley Snipes, and Mario Van Peebles, or 30 seconds with Meryl Streep and Elizabeth Shue. So when you're dealing with the civilians, the non-actors, the pedestrians, the audience, as it were, you have to learn how to speak their language, which is kind of like a coloring book. You know what I mean? And Everything has to be bold and, and, and presented nicely. If you're talking to fellow actors or fellow writers, you can get into the nuances all you want and entertain each other. But you have to learn the hard way that the general populace, you know, thinks in, in very broad strokes. And if you're going to communicate to that general audience, although it, it might sound condescending, you kind of have to learn to take your actor 
language and put that on hold because they're not going to understand or appreciate it. So I've learned throughout the years when you're talking to different people uh, and their interest level or their experience level in entertainment, you have to tailor your conversations to meet the uh, meet the expectations or the abilities of who you're speaking with. Mike's experiences with filmmaking led him to create his own festival, the Avalonia Film Festival. The films that I gravitate more towards are dialogue-based films and character development stuff. When I started making my own movies years later, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if I can really put a finger on, you know, this movie that I created, for instance, Blood Sugar Sedace is a 74-minute movie that I wrote, directed, and produced with my friend Tim Labonte back in uh, 2011. It's on my YouTube channel now. And the movie is very dialogue-driven base. And it's like, I don't even know what to compare that movie to, you know, because it's very unique. We had four actors in one location bouncing ideas off each other for 80 minutes. And people could look at that and think it's some type of, you know, French film or German film. Or, you know, it's hard to really put a finger on it because even I can't really tell you how we came up with Blood Sugar Sedace, except through necessity. I needed to make a movie for about a $10,000 budget, uh, most of that money going towards the cameras. And um, how do you make a movie with only 10 grand? You know, and, and the answer is, well, you limit your cast to four actors and you limit your location to one location. And you manipulate that location in such a way to make it interesting. And you, we rehearsed with the actors for a year. You know, Once a week for a year, we rehearsed until we had the, the cameras and the location ready to go. So you know, I think that's the expression, necessity is the mother of all invention. And uh, with, with my filmmaking, with that piece, Disregard the Vampire, a Mike Messier documentary is another example of that. Basically, in that project, I had to re-envision a narrative film into a documentary because the lead actor uh, dropped out of the project once we had already started filming. So there's no way to really prepare yourself for any of these life lessons, you know, because there's no manual or table of contents or guideline book on how to be a filmmaker or how to be an independent filmmaker or how to be an actor. You know, I mean, if, if someone wants to, if, if the, the, the interesting thing is if someone wants to be a lawyer, that's very difficult, but at least, you know, I need to get a bachelor's degree. I need to get a master's degree. I need to pass this law exam. At least there's a, a template to follow. But to be a successful filmmaker, actor, writer, director, production assistant, cinematographer, editor, good luck. You're really on your own. You know what I mean? So that's been a challenge for me and for everybody else in the film industry, too. I had been entering film festivals through a platform called Film Freeway for about three years, from about 2014 to 2017. Film Freeway was really in my opinion, a very revolutionary and empowering platform for filmmakers. Before then, there was a platform called Without a Box. To give Without a Box credit, they were first. The difference was with Film Freeway, you could enter your films, you know, short films, feature films, even uh, film posters through files on the internet. So you no longer required, as at the time Without a Box was, to print physical DVDs, take them to the post office, put them in packaging. Very expensive work for independent filmmakers was, was this, the reproduction of media, you know? Now, of course, that's better than 
20 or 30 years ago, you'd have to have film stock. So everything, you know, progresses. But Film Freeway, with a click of the button, so to speak, uh, it made life a lot easier for people like myself who had content, but not a lot of funds to enter contests. And what people don't realize is you might make a film, but if you want to enter a film festival, that might be 20 bucks just for one film festival. And that's not even guaranteeing your film will be accepted. So if you want to enter five film festivals in one day and the average cost is 20 bucks, that's 100. Well, what if those film festivals raise their fees or some of them do? And so now the average fee is three is 30 bucks. Then it's 150 for, for only five entries. What if the fees are 40? You see what I'm saying is that exponentially it can be very expensive to be an independent filmmaker. And what people don't realize is even the supposed low budget or no budget movie, who's buying lunch? And it's usually, in my situation, it's usually me. You know, if I'm if it's a, if it's a Mike Messier short film, I'm usually the one paying the bill. There's very rare occasions uh, other people will jump in, or uh, sometimes my friend uh, Tim Labonte, my oftentimes collaborator, he'll pay half, which is great. But a lot of times it's just me. It was it was affecting the quality of my life, the amount of money I was spending to enter film festivals, and I was you know getting accepted into some, winning some awards, but still. Losing money entering film festivals, taking, you know, the proverbial food off my table, so to speak. So the epiphany finally came in late 2017. Wow, I, I spend so much money entering film festivals, I need to run a film festival to get some money back. You know, I need to I need to run a film festival in order to supply my habit of entering other people's film festivals because at the end of the day, I like film festivals. I wouldn't be entering other people's festivals, and I wouldn't be running my own at this point. Uh, Avalonia Festival 7 is now accepting entries, and, and there's a .com now. And, and so basically, I, just, I determined I'm going to run a film festival that I would want to enter as a filmmaker. And the two things that I was looking for as a filmmaker is I want to compete for an award that I can possibly win, and I want low entry fees. So as a filmmaker, those are my two things that I'm looking for the most. I don't care where the festival is. I don't care if I can attend it. You know, I like to attend it, but if I can't, that's fine. But I want to know that there's an award that my, you know, animation film or my comedy or my dark comedy, that has a chance of actually winning an award. And the fees are fair. They don't have to be cheap or they don't have to be nothing, but just they're not ripping me off, right? So that was kind of the two tenets. And then I went into it and I'm thinking, well, what do other festivals that I've gone to, why am I going to these film festivals and they're, they're renting out 400 seat theaters and there's five people in the audience? You know, what about these festivals is wrong? And then the, the answer was, well, maybe their expectation is great. You know, maybe in this digital age, people aren't gonna fill a 400 seat movie theater like maybe they would in 1978 or in, in Sundance, maybe they would. But in Providence, Rhode Island, they're not gonna fill a 400 seat movie theater for, for short, unknown actors and films, right? So I decided to start renting a venue. At the time, it was the Brooklyn Coffee and Tea House, which fits 40 people. And I had an established relationship with the guy that ran the place, Tony Demings, because I would host a local film night there. So I had experience with the venue. Uh, there was a certain core audience of the venue that would probably turn out to support Avalonia Festival 1, which they did. 
And if I just scaled back the expectations of, I don't need to fill a 400-seat theater, but if I can get a good audience in a 40-seat venue and have a wonderful evening uh, in an intimate environment and take pictures and videos and give awards to these films, and the most important thing I did, I think, with Avalonia Festival, I would put the website of avaloniafestival.com against Sundance, the Tribeca, cons anybody if you look at my website for avalonia festival it's a better website than any of those festivals for when i started avalonia festival in 2017 i did not want my film festival to be stuck by geography in other words uh there's a 401 film festival which is 401 is the area code of rhode island so somebody has a 401 film festival which is a great festival but that's always going to be rhode island based if you have a film festival called the Providence Rhode Island Film Festival, or if you have one called the, you know, Huntsville, Alabama Film Festival, well, you kind of know where that's going to be every year. With Avalonia Festival, Avalonia is a continent of land that dissipated in the mists of time. And that's discovered in my book, A Distance from Avalon, When the Dying and the Dead Reunite. The whole idea of Avalonia Festival is to promote my book. You know, my, my story, uh, A Distance from Avalon, which is available on Amazon and for Kindle and for paperback, I've created a film festival to bring attention to my own creative work. And the theme of the festival is that this land, Avalonia, which drifted off um, the coast of New England and, and fell into the ocean, which is a true story, by the way, this is the art, the film, the media, the photography, the people of this forgotten land. So the interesting thing about Avalonia Festival that some people are catching on to is this is a whole other world. It goes back to the wrestling thing we talked about earlier. When I was attracted to a world that had not, not just a subculture, but its own culture, that's what I'm trying to do with Avalonia Festival. And that ties in once again with my own creative work, A Distance from Avalon. My advice to other filmmakers is do your due diligence in researching the film festivals before you enter them. I recently was looking at film festivals to enter, and I saw a Florida film festival listed of some kind. So I clicked on their website. I found a lot of spelling errors on their website, and I found a passage on their website that read, the city of Florida welcomes you to enter its film festival. And I said, okay, I've only been in here in Florida for two years, but I'm pretty sure there is no city of Florida. So I started doing a little bit of research, and to my opinion, this was a fraudulent film festival. There is no city of Florida. Uh, there were typos in that website that made it clear that the person was a non-English speaker who used some type of translation app or something to put this website together. And I even called the platform that had that festival on there to ask, you know, why is this festival being listed here when it's clearly a fraud? And uh, they, they didn't seem to be jumping at the bit to take any action, which was really disappointing to me. But my point in all that is for other filmmakers, if you were just to see Florida Film Festival or whatever it's called and just click and enter without doing the research that I did, which didn't take too long, it took about five minutes, you'd be saving yourself the $30 or the $40 or whatever the entry fee would be. So the point is, 
when you enter a film festival, at the very least, click on their website. You know, look for some validation. You know, look at the reviews that people have given the festival. But but even then, I, I would say, you know, you can judge a film festival to some extent by their website. What are they offering you? You know, if most people are not going to attend your film festival or any film festival, right? Most people, um, if if you're lucky, they'll go to the website. So how good is the website that this festival is offering? You know what I mean? Uh, here's another consideration. If, if you're spending a lot of money to enter film festivals, how much money do you have to travel to these film festivals if you were to get accepted? Because the, the reality is most film festivals can't afford to host the filmmakers, they, meaning that they can't fly you in or put you in a hotel. So if you were to get accepted to this festival, can you even afford to go out there for it? Uh, if it's something like a Sundance or a con or whatever, you, you might. You know what I mean? Um, you might justify spending that type of money to go out for those. Um, you know, for me, I once, in one of my Providence film festivals, a woman from Los Angeles actually flew out, which was a big honor for me. You know, for Avalonia Festival too, this lady from L.A. flew into Providence and rented a car, and there she was. And I was very thankful that that turned out to have a really good uh, turnout, and it was a very positive thing. And, and we introduced her to the audience to make you know her feel welcome. And so that was great. But for the most part, take into consideration just some practical things. Is this film festival legit? Are they offering awards? Are they offering prizes? Are they presenting a website that you can be proud of to be featured in? You know what I mean? Uh, those are the things that, that you can think of. If you can eliminate entering some of the film festivals that are not good for you and just concentrating your funds on the film festivals that are good for you, you'll feel better about the film festival process because you won't feel like you're wasting money on bad festivals for you. If the question is, are film festivals still the best way for a filmmaker to get noticed? I will answer that this way. I think it's the best way for a filmmaker to get practice. And when I say practice, I mean practice in networking, practice in socializing, practice in speaking like for Avalonia festival, I can only speak on my own festival, but the filmmakers that actually show up for the live events, I have them do a Q and a with the audience, you know, because if, if they're there and I'm and not just a, a, a pat two or three questions, but like a pretty in depth 10 or 12 or 15 minutes, whatever we have time for, because I want the filmmaker to get that feedback and that interaction. And also the kudos, you know, sometimes as filmmakers, we don't get the pat on the back. You know, my, my theory is that a lot of people do get mother's love, but they don't get daddy's pat on the back. You know, there's a lot of people in the world who have a father void, you know, a missing father complex. You know, for whatever reason, a lot of fathers don't show that approval. And so a, a great deal of, of the arts, I think, are, are people that are hungry for some type of validation. And a, a film festival oftentimes is that surrogate. But I want people to feel good about the fact that their film got accepted to, uh, Avalonia Festival. And, and a part of feeling good is showing your work and having the audience do a Q&A with it. When I say it's practice, it's because I, I'm not thinking that Avalonia Festival is um, going to skyrocket someone's career. However, doing the Q&A with me might plant some seeds that if this person is ever you know, on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon or whoever, or if they're ever doing a local media interview, or if they're ever questioned by some type of media outlet about their filmmaking or 
they've had practice in a live environment dealing with me as the host and the audience, uh, oftentimes fellow filmmakers, as their you know, feedback. For Avalonia Festival in particular, the networking aspect has been great. For instance, this last festival, Avalonia Festival 6, when I think people were just coming out of you know, pandemic times, a lot of people came in from Orlando, Florida to Jacksonville, which is a pretty, you know, three-hour drive. A lot of people came from Oramon Beach, which is about a, an hour and a half drive to Jacksonville. And the filmmakers were having such a good time that I suggested, okay, well, the venue has got to close down for the night. Why don't we go over to Panera Bread? And people were up for it, you know, and, and, and typically, you know, these days, at least when you kind of invite people to change venues and, hey, okay, we're having a good time here. Let's go somewhere else. That's when a lot of people duck out. Ah, that's okay. I'm going to go home. It's a long drive. But oddly enough, everyone stuck around. Everyone wanted to keep the good times going. And that was just a month and a half ago, you know, that that happened at Avalonia Festival 6. So I can tell you that if you build the right set of circumstances and, and the right vibe, uh, people can have a good time and, and some connections can, can get made. For Avalonia Festival 5, which was in November of 2020, which was the first Avalonia Festival in the middle of the pandemic, the option was, okay, you cannot do the live event. And I'd even save money if I didn't do a live event. But I took people's entries fees for you know promising a live festival. And I was lucky enough to find a venue uh, frame of mind art gallery at Ormond Beach, which is an hour and a half away from me. But the venue had a, a screening room, which also had a door that opened to the back, and the light from the open door would not reflect on the monitor, on the projection screen, right? So this was like a perfect scenario. I knew that we weren't going to have a huge audience because a lot of people were staying home, but I knew that I needed to have masks. And I needed to have open air in order to fight this horrible pandemic. And I still needed to have a nice venue. So of, of all those considerations, this art gallery was the place to do it. And, and the turnout was, was smallest for that one, you know, because of the circumstances. But for me, I can't take it personally. Concentrate on the people that do show up, not on the people that don't show up. So for the filmmakers that did come, and one of them was like a high school kid who had the best uh, horror film. But this kid got to speak. Uh, his parents were there. His, his sister was there. He got to speak with me in front of a couple of other filmmakers, get some encouragement. And that was very good. You know, that was, that was a really good time. So even with a small crowd, which does happen sometimes, you can make the most of it by concentrating on those that do show up. A great question is, what percentage of films entered into film festivals are waiting until the late deadline, which increases the entry fees? Uh, for, for many film festivals, including my festival, Avalonia Festival, and I also run an Avalonia photography competition now too, um, the entry fees increase as you move along in the festival entry submissions. For me, I only increase... Avalonia Festival entries by a dollar per session. Other festivals, you might have an early bird fee of $5 and a late deadline fee of 40 You know, and that's not for my festival, but for other festivals, it's that extreme. So on Film Freeway, at least, there's a way that you can kind of, you can have a watch list. 
You can monitor when festivals are coming up on their deadlines. Like Film Freeway really makes this easy so that if you put the time in, you can save a lot of money by doing the early entry fees. Now, guess what? Sometimes a movie doesn't get finished till October and the late deadline's November. And so you do want to enter and you, you, you'll take the hit and you'll pay the extra fees. Well, here's a, here's a way you can get around that or get some help. Um, a lot of people don't realize that on Film Freeway, there's a deals page. You know, if you just go to the bottom left, there's a thing that says deals. And all the festivals that are, ent- uh, that are offering promo code discounts, which Avalonia Festival always has a promo code discount, as does Avalonia Photography Competition, you can save 15%, 20%. Right now, I have a Christmas discount or a holiday discount for 25%. So that saves you some money right there. If you go to the social media of the film festival, their Facebook page, their Twitter page, their Instagram page, a lot of times these festivals are offering promo codes on their social media. So just, you know, like I said, do a little research. If you spend two minutes digging for a promo code and you save 25%, which might be eight bucks or nine bucks, ask yourself, was it worth five minutes of my time to save eight or nine bucks? Yeah, it probably was. You know, I, at one point, I even had a promo code on the very cover picture of my entry page on Film Freeway. So if people even looked at my Film Freeway page, the the promo code is right there on the graphic. About 25 or 30% of the people would use the promo code. And and for whatever reason, some people aren't using it. Maybe they're being nice and they want to give me the full entry fee. So thank you for those that did. After feeling he'd achieved all he could in New England, Mike decided to move to a new market where he re-energized many of his ventures, including his YouTube channel. With the venues for Avalonia Festival, I haven't really increased the scope of the venues. The first two Avalonia Festivals were at the Brooklyn Coffee and Tea House. The third one was at a bigger venue called the Courthouse Center for the Arts, uh, which was a great venue. But, you know, to be honest with you, the venue was a lot better, but the there was less of an audience because the, the venue was off the beaten path. It was in West Kingston, Rhode Island, which I, I thought I, maybe I overestimated people. I thought people would come out to this great venue, support the festival. But a lot of the filmmakers didn't even come out, a lot of the local ones. So and to be honest, Avalonia Festival 3, because of the low turnout uh, in December of 2018, the, the venue looked great. The films were great. My friend, once again, Tim Labonte, uh, was the technical director. Everything ran smooth. The people that were there had a great time. I was very disappointed with the lack of audience. And so that was one of several reasons, but one that stands out why I left Rhode Island. You know, that that was it. This was a great presentation. Where are all these supposed friends and colleagues of mine from New England? You know, and, and even these filmmakers that I've given awards to, why haven't they taken the time to drive out here and see their film on the screen? So that was one of the reasons, reasons I decided to move to Jacksonville, Florida where I've been now for over two years, because I've, I basically felt like, okay, either I've been here for too long, or uh, I've outgrown this place, or whatever, but I've hit a glass ceiling in New England, and it's time to take the Mike Messier show on the road. In 2019, I made a decision to move to Jacksonville, Florida from Wickford, Rhode Island. I had been living in Rhode Island in one city or another in that state for 25 years. I had a lot of good friends there. 
great friends that I still have. Some I'm not in touch with anymore. You know, once, you know, some people, when you move, that's it. But I had a lot of established ties there, but I felt like I hit it. I felt like I hit a glass ceiling. And to be brutally honest, there was no aspect of my life that was keeping me in New England. Uh, nothing with career that was keeping me there. Nothing with uh, personal relationships with a female. Nothing was keeping me there. I didn't like the weather. So of all the things in life that could be going on, I wasn't particularly happy with where I was living in Rhode Island. I was doing okay uncomfortably, is how I would describe it. Uh, on top of that, three, at least three key people in my life, but three come to mind, died. You know, quite simply, people pass away. So the considerations to stick in New England were not happening. The only reason to stay there would be to not give up the relationships or the comfort that I had. And not having a spouse, not having kids, not even having a pet, I was in a situation which, to me, it was now or never. Either I'm going to move now out of New England, and this, this is you know 2017, 2018, 2019, and I'm thinking either I move now or I'm going to die here. You know, that's, that's really what it's going to come down to. Because I've seen people in New England who stick around forever. They're, they're comfortable. They might gripe about it, but they're never going to move and they're never going to try anything else. And I never signed up for that. You know, I never signed up to be one of those people. So against the advice or the well wishes of some close friends and family who questioned what I was doing or questioned the finances of it, and really not having a big financial cushion at the time, I figured out a plan, which was, I don't need to own a house right now. I don't need to own an apartment. All I really need to do is, is just have a place to sleep at night and some place to put some of my stuff. So basically that situation is renting a room from somebody's house. And I've been you know around the block with Craigslist and, and everything else, Facebook Marketplace or, or Apartment Finder, where you can always find something. You can always find somebody who's renting a room uh, in a house or, or a cottage, you know, like uh, I guess saw myself as the Cato Caitlin, you know, with, without the murders, you know what I mean? Like, wh where can I go? Uh, as far as Jacksonville, uh, a friend of mine named Harrison Condit, he's like a father figure type, a mentor type. He had moved to Jacksonville about seven years before I did, and he loved it. He, as he described it, uh, and he's a very interesting guy, entrepreneurial. He did a computer database of like the cost of living, the roads, the, the crime, you know, like he did this whole database thing and somehow came up with Jacksonville. He left uh, Rhode Island, you know, seven years before I did. And he was telling me for years that I should give Jacksonville a shot. His interesting quote was, he said, I wouldn't live in any other city in Florida other than Jacksonville, which I thought was a very interesting comment. And so in February of 2019, I started on Super Bowl Sunday. I drove from Rhode Island to Maryland to stay with a friend of mine's house. We watched the Super Bowl. Then I drove from there, I think, to North Carolina. And then I think I, I, think I went from North Carolina. Maybe I stayed in Savannah, Georgia, actually, for a night or two. And then I got to Jacksonville. This was not my move. This was my exploratory trip. I did a two-and-a-half-week exploratory trip of basically Savannah, Georgia, and Jacksonville, Florida, to look at the, look at those two places as places to possibly move. 
I like Savannah a lot, uh, but it felt very much like Providence, Rhode Island in the late 90s. Like I, I remember going to a coffee house in Savannah and and seeing some type of newspaper, like an arts newspaper, and even the bands felt like very late 90s. So I, I kind of just felt like, okay, this is this is a cool town, but this really feels kind of like I've been here and done that. You know what I mean? Like it, it felt too familiar in a way. So I, I, I got to Jacksonville and I liked it. I mean, just, just simple things like Wawa, you know, it's, it's a gas station with food in it. I mean, that's all it is, but it's, a, it's for whatever reason, there was people that were a little more upbeat. Um, I found myself going to a place called the Cinemark Movie Theater. And on a Wednesday night in February of 2019, I'm seeing Peter Jackson's World War II documentary in a luxury movie theater with these reclining seats and I'm the only person in the theater. So for me, that felt great because, you know, I like going to the movies, but I really like it when I'm the only one in the theater. So I don't find myself attracted to cities like New York or Los Angeles, where it could be three in the morning and you, you know, you go to subway and you find yourself with a bunch of people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like that. I don't like being around tons of people. So Jacksonville has more people out and about than Rhode Island does but not so much that it makes it tough for me. So I'm just going by my own feelings. Uh, when I was in Jacksonville, I met the, um, the Jacksonville film bar group, you know, the lady named Alexa and, and other filmmakers, really nice people who were just very, to me, welcoming enough. They weren't, you know, I, I think in their minds, here's this guy coming from Rhode Island saying that he's probably going to move here in six months. But I'm guessing most of them, you know, were like, okay, well, if you do, you do. If you don't, you don't. You know, I don't think any of them were putting bets on it one way or the other. One guy was nice enough to tour me around. You know, a, a guy from that film group uh, gave me a tour of different apartments in Jacksonville for possibilities. So, so my point is people were very welcoming just enough, you know, not overbearingly welcoming, but welcoming in a, in a good way. You know, I found myself doing a lot of cool things. And then when I got back to New England, my initial game plan was, okay, well, I'll do this exploratory trip in 2019, and then I'll move at some point in 2020. Well, I guess I had a really good time in Jacksonville because when I got back, I said, you know what, why should I wait? You know, what's the point of waiting another year? The, the reason was for some financial reasons. But I, I decided if I really push this thing, I can make this move happen this year. So the way that I did it, and uh, as you might know, on my subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel, I have three videos moving to Florida, part one and part two and part three. Uh, so when I decided to move, once again, I had no locked in location to move to. I didn't have a house or an apartment or a friend I was going to stay with. I just felt in my gut somewhere there'll be a place for me to, to go. So I packed my car up full of stuff in September of 2019 still leaving my Rhode Island apartment behind with a, with half the other stuff. And I, I drove to Florida with, with the destination of finding a place to live. You know, and once again, I didn't drive overnight for 26 hours. I stayed over a, a couple of nights en route. But eventually, um, just using Craigslist, and, and here's the key, I put my own ad on Craigslist. You know, rather than just clicking around for people looking for a place uh, for, for someone to rent a room, I put my ad that I was looking to rent a room. And that's, that's the most positive response I got. This lady named Caroline responded. Uh, she had an, a, a townhouse that she was renting. She was going to sublet me a room in it. She wasn't even going to be there for six weeks. 
to be honest, it sounded a little fishy when I was talking to her. But when I showed up, it turned out to be legit. You know, her boyfriend actually was at the house and it, it was all very up and up. And so I had this townhouse to myself for six weeks. Now, in that time, I had already booked a flight to go to Texas to film in a movie. Uh, a friend of mine, Jamie Reborn, hired me for a movie in Texas in the middle of all this. And when he bought his tickets, he bought me an airline ticket about six months earlier. He said, Mike, where do you want your airline ticket to, to be from? And that was really the catalyst for me to lock into Jacksonville. Because if this guy's buying me a ticket, I need to know, am I going to be in Florida or am I going to be in Rhode Island? So that's when I decided, okay, man, I, I just, just get the ticket from Jacksonville. And that is, it, it locked me in. So I get to Jacksonville. I'm only there for about three days. Then I'm flying to Texas for a couple of days for this movie. And then I'm flying back. And then about two weeks later, I had to take another road trip because now for one month, I'm paying double rent in, in Florida and I'm paying rent in Rhode Island. Well, that's got to stop. So I've got to drive back. <laughs> this was the hardest part of the trip, as you might imagine, is, is driving back to Rhode Island to clean up the old apartment and, and to get the other half of my stuff. And this is the stuff where it's like decision time. you know. And, and when you're moving, what I figured out is, you have four choices, uh, stuff that you take, stuff that you throw out, stuff that you give away, and stuff that you sell. That's basically, it com comes down to those four things. Or maybe, maybe a fifth thing of stuff that you store with somebody else, which I did as well. But I, I discovered that the easiest way to sell stuff was through an auction house. There was this really cool place in Cranston, Rhode Island, where you give them your stuff and they auction it. And they take a cut, but you get, you get most of the money. you know. So that was, for me, a lot easier than eBay or anything like that because this place had a running business. Like That's their business is to auction off crazy stuff from people. So that was really helpful. Basically, you know, three people came through for me. Uh, my sister, Nadine, uh, my friend Moro became my eBay advocate. You know, he, he took a lot of my wrestling stuff especially, and he's been my eBay salesman for, for two years now. And um, my friend Steve Barrow. Uh, who I'm working on this um, MIA POW project. Steve helped me clean up quite a bit too. It really was tough though to clean out that apartment after living there for 10 years, you know, going through all this stuff, then packing up the car a second time. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was just a car full of stuff. And then I've got to go down to Florida for, for round number two. But at least at that point, I know where I'm headed. You know what I mean? The way that I did things, I didn't use U-Haul. Um, because I, I had nowhere to tell them where to go. You know what I mean? Like I said, I didn't buy property or, or arrange a, a housing arrangement. My biggest fear on the initial drive down was if I can't find a place right away, that's going to be really tough because, you know, they don't have a car full of stuff. And if I'm staying at a hotel or stuff and I've got my car full of things, that might be scary. But I guess I just had a leap of faith that I'd figure something out. And luckily it, it happened. Hi, this is a very special uh, video for my returning subscribers. This is Mike Messier. I've been putting a lot of time into revamping and remodeling the Mike Messier uh, YouTube uh, appearance. My YouTube channel has been an interesting experience for me. I used to just call it Mike Messier uh, for my YouTube channel, but at some point I realized that whenever I would make a comment on someone else's YouTube channel, what appears in the comments for my name would be the name of my YouTube channel. So I decided if I switch the name of my YouTube channel to literally subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel, 
every time I'm on somebody else's YouTube channel and make a comment, they are reading, subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel. So if, if they get the hint, they can click on my, my channel name and, and maybe they'll subscribe. So my title of my actual channel is subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel. I was doing YouTube videos maybe pretty consistently since 2016 or 17, but I wasn't taking it seriously. I always thought that the making money on there was out of my range. Like I thought you had to have millions of subscribers. I really didn't do the time and the research to find out how it worked. Once again, you know, I wish I could go back in time and put more effort into YouTube 10 years ago instead of just two years ago, because I just didn't realize that it's actually doable to, to get monetized on YouTube. It's actually doable to get an audience and to, to make things happen. But I didn't put the work in or the research in at that time. I wish I had, you know, because once, once the pandemic started and it really forced me to just sit in front of a computer a lot as, as my creative outlet, I started looking into, I think I did a YouTube search. How do you get more YouTube subscribers? How do you get more YouTube viewers? And I discovered this whole other world, once again, of advice videos from all types of interesting people. Roberto Blake, I think is his name, is a really good one. But there's a lot of good ones. Good people that they're actually making their money or their video fame from teaching other people how to do that. You know what I mean? So there's a whole subculture of YouTube performers uh, whose content is how to help others get more viewers. You know what I mean? Uh, so I started watching these videos and learning some things about, you know, keywords and tag words and playlists. And I'm looking at my YouTube channel. And I, at this point, even I had like a thousand videos up there, but a lot of them were just, they're not organized. There's, they're maybe that they're not even titled correctly. It, my, my YouTube page was like a, a beautiful mess, you know, but it just, just, just nutty because I, I didn't put the time into organizing it. Once I started taking some notes here and realizing, man, I wish I had this thing organized from the get-go because now I've got to go back to all these videos and, and reconstruct them. You know what I mean? Wish I had done that from the beginning, but that's okay. There was a, there's an app uh, called TubeBuddy. It's an extension onto your browser. And what TubeBuddy does is a lot. And I, I signed up for it. And it helps you organize your YouTube presence, you know, and now I have a uh, TubeBuddy associate, you know, link like everybody does that gets on there. So the point is it helps you with your keywords. It helps you with your titles. It helps you with your thumbnails. Uh, you have to do the work. This platform just provides you with the tools in order to get this stuff done a lot easier. So basically my goal when I started with TubeBuddy, and this was going back, I think, to June of 2020. I had about 346 subscribers and I was basically stagnant. I was stuck there for a couple of years, around the 300 level of subscribers, no gain really. Well, I started doing all these things and started gaining some momentum. And a big thing that's helped my channel is my pro wrestling rants, my angry, angry pro wrestling rants, and also my coverage of AEW shows, the all elite wrestling group that's in Jacksonville. I'll go there to the live shows with my phone camera. And even though I'm taking little clips of the matches and the same matches are on broadcast television with perfect cameras and everything, I'm giving the audience a look into these wrestling matches from literally the fans' point of view. 
So if you were a fan in the audience and you're looking at the match, this is how you see it. So people, in addition to watching the live television broadcast, will sometimes watch my clips because it's like, oh, that's what it's like to be a fan. You know what I mean? Like if you had if you had footage from a phone camera of, of a guy at the Super Bowl, it would be interesting in a different way than the official coverage, you know? So this AEW stuff has helped me a lot because they're doing a national worldwide television program with millions of fans and a, a small sliver of those fans are finding me and checking me out. My most popular video on my channel is Chris Jericho, the wrestler coming out to the ring. And it's a 15 second clip and about a hundred people who've seen that video have subscribed to my channel because there's a common interest wrestling. And so they said, well, I'll give this guy a shot. Now, once they get subscribed, do they stick around to watch Mike's original films, which is, you know, the movies I've talked about, Blood Sugar Today's, The Impeccable. So you're the guy, all the short films that I have on my different playlists, do they watch Messier Mantra, which is my talk show? Do they watch my celebrity interviews with guys like Randy Couture? You know, I interviewed him back in 2005. I interviewed Vinny Pazienza, the boxer, Bob Backlund. I've interviewed John, Jonathan Silverman, you know, the Broadway actor. Uh, I just interviewed Eric Roberts two weeks ago. You know, so, so will, will the wrestling fans who find me through AEW or through anything else, will they stick around for the Mike Messier experience? That's up to them. But I've, I put the olive branch out there. I put the open invitation out there to the world. This is what I am. This is what I'm doing. If you like it, stick around. If you don't, that's okay. But, you know, I'm pretty happy with the YouTube channel because about three months ago, I crossed over to the thousand subscriber mark. So now I'm officially monetized. And even that's a process. You know, there's paperwork to do. There's there's codes and all that good stuff. But it's doable. And so now I'm in the point where I need to grow. I need to go from this very, you know, relatively small subscriber base of 1,000, get that to 10,000. And then after that, it'll be 100,000 and then a million. It might take 10 years. Who knows? But it's it's a work in progress. But there has been progress. You know, and I think that that's probably the, the, the greatest lesson is you, you, you got to sometimes apply yourself to things that don't have an immediate payoff because they'll never have any type of payoff if you don't start them at some point. My focus for 2022 is I want to really concentrate on my writing. And one thing I've decided is that in, instead of screenplays per se, I want to concentrate more on writing novels. And the reason for that is, although I love writing screenplays and I think I'm pretty good at it. The hard thing with writing a script is you spend a lot of time, you have a vision for this movie in your mind. First of all, the, the, the movie may never get made. You know, that's the toughest pill to swallow for any screenwriter is you might write a great script. People might even acknowledge it's a great script, but it may never get made. The second thing is sometimes you might write a script and say it does get made, but it gets made poorly. <laughs> that might even be worse you know than if it never got made at all because if at least if, if it never got made at all you still have that movie in your mind that's perfect you know what i mean like the, the movie that hasn't been filmed is always perfect because it's just in your imagination right but if a movie that you wrote actually gets made and it happened to me you know at least once where the words i wrote somehow got compromised by a director or producer or somebody and the movie comes out like garbage or, or something similar to garbage or whatever. So that's a painful pill. 
the greatest thing about filmmaking is the, is the worst thing, which is the collaboration. It's it's at the same time the best and worst of the entertainment industry, especially filmmaking, because with collaboration comes compromise, and sometimes the compromises are not for the best. And depending on your amount of uh, dedication to the project or or how close you are to the vision, it it might literally hurt. So my answer to all that is instead of writing these screenplays, which are privy to the world of, of funding and other people and all that good stuff, I'm just going to concentrate on the written word of the book, you know, which is why I wrote A Distance from Avalon with The Dying and the Dead Reunite. Uh, that's on Amazon for paperback and Kindle. And then most recently, I, I literally just finished about two weeks ago, uh, Fight or Play Basketball for the Amazon Kindle app, Kindle Vela app. Those were both screenplays that I wrote as scripts, screenplays first, and then wrote the novel version after, which I think is pretty empowering because now I feel like the words stand on their own, at least as a creative thing. And if there's ever an opportunity, which I'm still working on to get those things made into movies, I will do that. Um, But at least I can say that I wrote the book the way that I wanted to without interference from other people. So for 2022, I think my concentration is uh, getting back to the a distance from Avalon story and writing the sequels for that, and uh, just putting some more time into my uh, a distance from Avalon story, which once again coincides with AvalonniaFestival.com. My overall advice to people that want to do creative arts is: first of all, don't apologize for wanting to be involved in creative arts. What I mean by that is, a lot of people sometimes they have families. Uh, parents or siblings or close friends who will actively discourage you from doing things you're good at. And a lot of times that's because of they haven't done things that interested them in their lives. So they don't see the arts or film or acting or writing as a viable way of making money because it didn't work for them because they never tried. So, so these types of people, you know, some people call them dream stealers. I typically use the term diminishers. You know, people that diminish anything you're trying to do, you have to really tune them out or use their negativity as, as a, a fire for your own engine. You know, because I, I think it's easy to think that everybody's got supportive parents or supportive friends or supportive families that are cheerleaders for the, for the would-be artist. A lot of times that's not the case. So I said the first thing is just to trust your own feelings and learn, although it's tough, to to validate yourself and not seek the validation of others as you pursue this. That's that's a mental thing. On, on a more practical level, we are in a time that I think it's never been easier to work, to have work in a practical way that works for you. If you think about Lyft, Uber, all these like shopping apps, they constantly need drivers. So if somebody's out there thinking, well, you know, I want to be an artist, but I don't have time for that because I have this job, blah, blah, blah. Well, you can probably make just as much money or close to it being a delivery driver for one of these several apps, which as long as if you have a driver's license and, and common sense and, and somewhat decent personality, there's really no excuse not to be able to go anywhere. Like you could move to Florida, Nebraska, LA, New York, and there's some type of job that you can do with these delivery things, if nothing else. You, you can be an eBay salesman. You can go to the Dollar Tree and buy stuff cheap and then resell it on Amazon. Or I mean, there's, all, there's so many ways now. You can just do a search for how to make money from home. I mean, there's so many ways for people to make money that 
the whole thing of I can't be an artist because I won't pay the bills, so I have to have this 40-hour-a-week job that I hate, that's garbage now. That's a garbage excuse. Maybe in the 1990s or, or whatever, that was valid, but not anymore. Really, there's there's so many things that people – side hustle is what people call it. But there's so many ways for people to make money. To, to I'm just talking about survival money. I'm not talking about rich and famous money. Just There's ways to make survival money that if you have something like that, then you can pursue your acting. If people are interested in acting coaches, uh, I'm a good acting coach, and they can find me through MikeMessier.com. I've done uh, online acting coaching. I'm available and pretty affordable. There's a lot of things people can do to get involved. Um, I really get upset when people ask me for advice and they don't take it, which happens a lot, because I'll, I'll give people quick advice fast for free, and a lot of times they don't take it. Well, if that happens, I, I typically get away from those people or I tune them out because I know that happened recently here in Jacksonville. A guy was hitting me up. He wanted to be an actor. He told me how much he wanted to be an actor, right? And I said, well, that's funny because in two weeks, there's this audition for this play here in Jacksonville. The Shawshank Redemption is doing a show here. And, and this is a local community theater and, and it's an all-male play, you know? So <laughs> there's going to be a lot of roles. Why don't you come out to the audition? Well, you know, he said he would, he said he would, he said he would. Two weeks later, I went to the audition and he wasn't there. For all the things that he said, I gave him one simple assignment. Here's an audition, show up. Didn't do it. So I, I think that a lot of people are like that. They'll talk it, they'll talk it, they'll talk it. You give them one little assignment or one little chore and they don't show up for it. I, I think for the people that do show up, you know, that, that, that's the old cliche is, you know, half of life is showing up. I would say all of life is showing up. For me, it's MikeMessier.com. Uh, subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel. Uh, I'm in this movie, Mr. Birthday, with Eric Roberts. Probably the best thing that people can watch of mine is Disregard the Vampire, a Mike Messier documentary. That's on my Subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel and the feature film, Blood Sugar Sedace. Thanks for listening to Creators by Moonlight. Email the show at creatorsbymoonlight at gmail.com and follow the show on social at Creators by Moonlight.